James chapter 1, we come to a a fascinating text, and certainly you've probably have read this text before and wondered, what does that exactly mean? Well, we'll study it today. But you remember in one sixteen, follow with me there, do not be deceived in one sixteen of James, my beloved brethren, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be the kind of first fruits of his creatures. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving themselves. Grizzly bears are arguably the most significant animal threat to humans in North America. Did a little reading on them this week. Grizzly, if you didn't know this, the word means, you probably didn't know this, golden-haired. That's what it means. If you just said grizzly, what does it mean, golden hairs? But a famous pun was institutionalized by a naturalist by the name of George Ord, O-R-D. He classified them, quote, not for their looks, but for their grisly character, end of quote. In fact, grisly means causing horror. So Ord classified the grisly as Urcus Arctos Horribilis, which means the horrible American bears. I mean, these deceptively docile-looking fuzzy creatures are notorious for their dexterity at killing humans with a casual swat, but then also feasting on their carcass. And since they can move faster than the average cyclist, that says a lot, doesn't it? Cyclist, believe me, they can catch you, okay? There is no use trying to outrun a bear. Your best defense should, if you have the unhappy privilege of encountering one in the wild, is to lie in the fetal position, play dead, and hope it's not hungry. Unless you are Timothy Treadwell. Treadwell, maybe you've heard of Timothy Treadwell. He was nicknamed Grizzly Man. And he spent 13 months in Alaska's Katmai National Park, thousands of hours living with bears. And he captured some of the most intimate and spectacular footage ever seen of these grizzlies. And over time, the bears begin to accept him in their presence. And he could walk right up to them and stroke them like a domestic pet. And Treadwell was not afraid of the bears, nor were they afraid of him. 
And that became a problem because park officials viewed him as a misguided at best and at worst, dangerous. They were concerned that his example could lead others to believe that the bears were harmless. And all the other bear experts agreed that the grizzlies were still wild, still dangerous, and that Treadwell was treading on thin ice by being near them. Well, the experts were right. In 2003, at the end of his 13th month visit, this time with his girlfriend, Amy, tragedy struck. For absolutely known, no known reason, a bear suddenly killed both Treadwell and his girlfriend and then ate them. And the only part of his body that was found was a severed arm with a distinctive wristwatch still ticking, as if the bear wanted to make some macabre and ironic point about his time with them was running out. I couldn't help but think of that story and jump to the spiritual realm that we forget a dangerous threat is out there called temptation. And if we're not careful, we snuggle up too closely to sin and act as though sometimes it's not destructive. And if you are not careful, if I am not careful, sin and temptation are hunting for precious life. And so I say to us this morning as we walk into this text regarding temptation, we need to be careful. And as we open our Bibles to James, we remember that James is addressing a people who were in danger, he will say later in chapter 1, of becoming forgetful hearers. Now you remember as we've studied this book so far that the theme of James is test of living faith. I don't know if this comes up on the screen, if I got that in there. We look first at faith is tested, there it is, in life's trials in verses 2 through 8. Then secondly, we noted that faith is tested in life's temptation. And that's where we left off last week. And now we're just going to continue the thought, thirdly, that our faith, your faith, my faith is tested in the hearing of God's word. Now, remember, I've been saying throughout the last weeks together that all of this runs together. We're still looking at the same theme, though we're putting them in these categories. It's tested in trial. It's tested in temptation. And now it will be tested in the hearing of God's word. Now, as we approach verse 19, there are some commentators, maybe I should actually say many commentators, that see absolutely no link with what has come before. In other words, they say that this is a new section. Maybe in your Bible, you can see that it's a new division. In fact, in my Bible, in the ESV, there's a little header on it that the publisher put in there, hearing and doing the word. I'm okay with that. I suppose it is a, a new line of thought. But on the other hand, it is not a new line of thought. There is a... Unlike many of these these commentators, there is a total connection 
with what we've seen and where we're going. The dominant theme as we move forward is the power, the transforming power of the Word of God. And so for the first time, James is going to really kind of get, I want to say practical, and move you how you can have victory in temptation. And how you can have victory is through the transforming power of the Word of God. Let me show you how that theme runs through. Look at verse 18 in your Bible. It says, of his own will, he brought us forth, and then this phrase, by the Word of truth. Now, we looked at that last week. He saved us. He redeemed us. He, he generated, if you will, life in us and caused us to be born again. And the agent that he did so here is by the transforming power of the Word of God. Look down in verse 21. He says there to put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness, he uses this phrase, the implanted Word So he's not left his thought. This is not a new paragraph and division as though he's off into some new section. No, you just kind of got to walk through James and you begin to see this. He brought us forth by the word of truth. He tells us in verse 21 to receive with meekness the implanted word. Look down in your Bible at verse 22. There he says in that off-quoted phrase, be doers of the what? Word. He's in the theme of the power of the Word of God. If you look down at verse 25, it says there, another descriptive phrase, but the one who looks into the perfect law. It's just another description of the Word of God. After that, look again at verse 25. He not only calls it the perfect law, he calls it the law, speaking of the Scripture, of liberty. In other words, the Word of God is not depressing. The Word of God is not restricting. He called it a perfect law. He will see in the weeks to come, He called it a law of liberty. In fact, you can go into chapter 2, look down at verse 8. If you really fulfill what He called there, the royal law, okay? The Bible is called a royal law. If you look down in verse 9, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law or by the word as transgressors. Look at verse 10. Whoever keeps the whole law. Look at verse 11. For the one who said do not commit adultery also said, do not murder. And if you commit adultery, but do not commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Look at verse 12. So speak and so act as those who are judged under the law. Again, it's not hard to find the theme here. The theme is the transforming power of the word of God. And the Word of God binds what we've just seen with the section going forward. And so having been brought to faith through the regenerating Word in verse 18, in 19 through 27, we are sustained daily by that living Word. And so the connection is this, and and I'm taking some time to go through this because this is amazing stuff. (laughs) This is the Word of God. 
But having defended the character and the goodness of God in salvation through his word, here's what James is saying is we now must take that word that saved us and put it in our daily life. And so we would say in a theological paradigm that the new birth is to be followed by the, by the new life in obedience. That word, Grace Church of the Valley, that saved you should be the word that's sanctifying you at the same time. And so as you put this all together, temptation is powerful, yes, but there is help this morning and in this book, in this text, with his precious word. And so the key then to responding to trials, the key to responding to temptation is the transforming power of the word of God. And so here is the path to victory over temptation. Now what James does here in 1:19 through 27 is he outlines for us three vital responses to the word of God, okay? In other words, he's going to tell us that word that saved you, saved me, you ought to respond to it in a certain way. Three vital responses to God's word. And we'll see this this week and the weeks to come. We must hear God's word, okay? Then we must receive God's word, and then we must obey God's word. We've got to hear it, we've got to receive it, we've got to obey it. So let's dive in here first on letter A, hearing God's word with submission. Hearing God's word with submission. Look at verse 19. Let's just walk into the text. He says there, know this, my beloved brothers. Now, stop just for a second. You say, what do they know? Well, there could be a question if, know this, I don't have to get too technical with you if it's an indicative or imperative, either know this looks back or know this looks forward, depending on how you see that word in the language. But I think it's very clear that the know this looks back. It looks back to verse 18. And if you're in here and you're in Christ and you've been redeemed, he's saying that you know that to be true. Okay, you know that you have been regenerated by the word of truth. You know this to be truth. You know that he made you a new creation. You know of his power to save you. He said, you know this to be true. But then look what he says in verse 19. He says there, let's, well, yeah, actually before let every person, he says, beloved brothers, okay, he calls them in a term of affection, a term of, of just warmth. I mean, James is just so uh, pastoral. And his appeal, and he's going to make a strong one, I think is just offset here. He's not harsh and he's loving. Okay. Now, I want you to understand that even as you look at verse 19, look at it again. This, you know, my beloved brothers, he's writing to you. He's writing, let me say it another way, to believers. In fact, I read a host of scholars that just went on a whole paradigm how 
this could be to people who are in the flock who are not believers, but they don't really have true faith. And if they really had true faith, they would understand they don't have faith and this ought to bring them to Christ. I, I guess I could see a, a, uh, maybe some kind of outward description of that. But I just want you to know he's writing to you. He doesn't have another audience in mind. He's writing to believers. He's writing under the Spirit of God to you at Grace Church of the Valley. Okay? He's writing to you. You know this, my beloved brothers. Now look what he says again in verse 19. He says, let every person... Stop there just for a second. That means all of you. Okay? You know that. But lest we go through a history lesson, he's writing under the Spirit of God to these believers who were scattered, but the Spirit of God is, is speaking to you. So he's writing to the brothers. He's writing to every person. He's writing to man, woman, and child in this flock. Now, what does he say? Look at the text again. He says there, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Now, what a statement. You've seen that before. And it is a, well, I, it, it, it's in the language, it functions as a command, okay? And that command of being quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger is a present tense underscoring its continual duty. And so here, stepping back again, we've experienced the new birth, but we must be ever so careful to not get stuck, I'm going to put it this way, in a temptation We must go on to growth, and we must go on to fruit-bearing, is the thought. Now, the key question then for you this morning, for my own heart, is how do I hear, almost like on your bulletin cover, how do I hear God's Word and have victory over the temptation? And there's three commands that just fall from this, okay? Three commands, and they're right there in the text. We just read them. The first command is this. Be quick to what? Hear. Now, what is James saying there? Maybe before I tell you what he's saying, let me tell you what he's not saying. He's not talking about here about being a good listener, okay? I I mean, I suppose he, he is, but you have to grab it into the context. But he's not just referring to communication. I've heard this passage just I don't know, abused by people in biblical counseling and they roll these out and I suppose there could be secondary application here. But what's he talking about being quick to hear? One commentator said this, and this is very common. He said, communication theory, quote, as a discipline of the behavioral sciences is primarily a phenomenon of the later half of the 20th century. He said that God is the most effective communicator in the universe, and we should not be surprised that he shares some very helpful counsel in his word regarding how we can communicate more effectively, end of quote. I mean, is that what James is talking about? Is he telling you, just in a brand new section, hey, you need to be good communicators, and God's the greatest communicator, and he's sharing some helpful, you know, little minor points for us to be better in communication. Is that it? I mean, another commentator said one reason there is, quote, so many broken relationships is that people stop listening to each other. Communication can break down between husbands and wives, parents and children, employers and employees. And the, this commentator said, quote, we should, be, we should listen more than we speak. Is that what James is talking about? 
I mean, I, I can't tell you how many times I read this week that we ought to wake up and understand that he gave us two ears and one, what, mouth. And so we ought to listen twice as much as we speak. Now, listen, when it says, and he gives this command, be quick to hear. I think those, those thoughts that I just mentioned miss the context. And what's the context? It's the word of God. And he's telling you, and he's telling me how to respond to the word of God, how to respond to that word. And he's saying, if we kept it in the context, in the midst of temptation, let's keep it there, be quick to hear God's what? Word. That's at least the direct application. Go in the midst of your temptation to God's word. Let it be the first place you go. Don't necessarily go to a friend, though that's helpful. Don't necessarily get on the phone, though that could be somewhat helpful. Don't necessarily go to the email. Don't necessarily go to the text. Go to God and go to his word. I mean, it is entirely possible, maybe even as that we've come in this morning, if you look back at chapter 1, look at verse 2, where he says, you know that, that refrain there in 1, 2, count it all, what? Joy. And it could be, remember we said that that word for count or the word consider is a mathematical term and it means to add up these things as, a, as joy. In other words, know intellectually as you calculate this that a trial should be one of joy. Add it up to understand that. In fact, look back at chapter 1 verse 3. He said, for you know, and he speaks of that word knowing by observation, you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. It could entirely be likely could be likely that they've lost all joy and they forgot that God, what God is producing in them and it's departed from them in the midst of the trial or in the midst of the temptation. So I think what James is saying is slow down in trial for you. Slow down in the midst of a temptation. Ask for wisdom. Trust his person and be quick to hear his word. The thought is, be swift to hear His Word. And so it might be fair for me to just stop here and say to you, are you listening to God's Word in the midst of your trial, in the midst of your temptation? When tempted, James is giving you a command in me to run to the Word of God. This is the only way to deal with lust and temptation. So whether it be this morning a family in crisis, a marriage in crisis, are you, and I I take this either individually and corporately, being quick to hear the word. You, You say, what do you mean individually? I think he's talking to you individually. He's talking to me, my own heart. But I also think he speaks to our church corporately. And so I think he's dealing with our receptiveness to hear the word of God in submission, whether it be in our own private time or in our corporate worship. You know, you think of all the myriad of things that can be about you with families and illness. You think of physical sickness. You think of people facing cancer. And the question that James would ask And come back to us. You say, well, Scott, why are you pinning it back to that? Well, because I don't think they were doing it. I think in the midst of the trial, you remember some of them were blaming who? God. 
I think some of them were even angry with God. And James is saying, listen, as you hear God's word, get in submission under it and be swift to hear it. I'm thinking of Psalm 46.10, be still and know that I am God. So be quick to the hearing of the word of God. Secondly, look at verse 19. He said, let every person be quick to hear and slow to what? Speak. And there's the thought again. We have two ears and one mouth, most people say. And you should listen twice as much as you talk. And they think the speaking here is that just, and they go back to all the Proverbs, and there's truth to this, that tells us to listen and being careful of the words that come out of our mouth. And I can, I can understand that. Some people want to pen this phrase here on being slow to speak. If you went over to chapter 3 in James, look at it. And he will say this, let not many of you should become what? Teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. And so they say this speech applies to pastors and um, they will be held accountable for what they say. So be careful of running into the office. And I, I think those are true. Those are general applications. But here is a call This seems to be the point. It's a call to restraints to a quick tongue in life's trials. Be hesitant, if you will, in just blabbering and complaining and grumbling and becoming negative, if you will. Do you see how it takes on another? Listen, James is saying, listen, you'd be swift to get under the hearing of the word of God and be slow to speak, whether it be to God or to people regarding your trial. And it could be at least, and I'm trying to stay in the context that this one here in the text is contending with God. You say they are? Well, isn't that what it said? Look back in 113. He said there, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by who? God. See, I would just tell you there's a great danger in my heart, maybe all of our lives, that when you get in a trial, we talk too much as a general rule, don't we? And, and, but I even think James is beyond that. I think we either speak to one another or speak to God in a way that doesn't honor him. No, no wonder he said, look back at 116 of James. Do not be, what? Deceived. He told us to not be deceived. He said in verse 18 there that he brought us forth. Don't be deceived in any way. So here is, I believe, a safeguard against shallow, immature reactions to life's trials. Stop arguing, and I'm going to pinpoint it, with God. Stop circumventing God in the process of your, chi- of your trial. Stop promoting your own ideas. Be slow to speak. Listen to his word. You know, I'm just trying to think of all the places in James where the tongue gets us in a world of trouble, doesn't it? Look down in, in James 1.26. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own, deceives his heart, this man's religion is what? 
worthless. Now you say, well, Scott, that could be tongue in general to people. Certainly it can be. But I almost wonder if he's just talking directly to us in the midst of a trial. We, I think, could talk too much. Look over at chapter 3 of James. Is, did he not bring this up in 9 when he said, With it, speaking of our tongue in 3 9, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who have been made in the likeness of God, and from the same mouth come both blessing and cursing my brothers. These things ought not to be so. Look down at chapter 4 and verse 11, where he said, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. And so whether James is directly going vertically in our relationship with God, or he's going horizontally in our relationship with one another, he's saying there in verse 11, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. In fact, if you go down to chapter 5, look there. He even would say, and we'll get to all of this, do not, 5-9, grumble against one another, brothers. And so this issue of the tongue is a major component of true faith. In fact, do you remember? Look, let me show you an example of this. Look over in Job. Would you go back there? You say an example of being slow to speak. Go to Job. Go to Job chapter 2. You know, maybe this is exactly where, where he's at. Remember all the stuff that happened to Job. Incredible all that happened to him. You know, remember his wife said to him in 2.9 of Job, his wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Remember what she said? Curse God and what? Die. You say, where'd that come? Right out of her mouth. Right out of her mouth. And I think this is where James is going with us, that either directly we blame and speak against God or indirectly. She just said, Job, you're, you're, in essence, you're ridiculous. You ought to, with what's happened to you, is curse God and die. Look at Job's response. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? Now, this is the great phrase. It's like the song we just sang, 10,000 Reasons. Then he said at the end of 2.10, In all this, Job did not sin with his, what? Lips. Wow. I mean, either to her or to God himself. I think James is just coming back at us and he's just saying, listen, you got yourself in a trial. He's not the one to blame. God himself can't be tempted by evil. He himself doesn't tempt anyone. He's basically saying, fix it in your mind. The reason you sin is your own lust and your own lust carries you away. Your own lust entices you and you're being lured out to sin and then sin conceives and it brings forth death and when you know and when it conceives it it grows up all of its own and then it leads to death don't be deceived then he says let me tell you about the character of god it's good and it's perfect it's righteous and it's holy and the only thing god does is cause you to come forth so that you would be holy and now he gets back at us and he says you need to be quick to hear slow to speak against god and job was Slow at the beginning. But look over to Job chapter 40. Because then he met his three friends, didn't they? Didn't he? And did his three friends talk a lot? Yeah, they talked way too much. And three sorry friends, three sorry counselors you are. But not only did they talk too much, who else talked too much? (laughs) Job, didn't he? 
He was better at 210. Then you walk through the, the, the middle section in there where his three sorry counselors come in. And then, he, and then it says in 40, verse 1, And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with who? God. Arguing with God. And even Job got caught up in it. He said, let him answer it. Now watch this. Have you ever seen this in Job 40, verse 3? Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my what? Mouth. In other words, he said, I got to shut up. If the kids were in here, they'd be hitting their parents. The pastor said, shut up. I think Job got the end of it, just said, I better put my hand on my mouth. I'm talking too much. He's contending, if you will, with God. Look at it. He says in verse 5, I have spoken once. And I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Will you ever, will you even put me in the what? The wrong. Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God? And can you thunder with a voice like this? And then he goes on and he says all those things to Job. And it was amazing. But Job said, I put my hand on my mouth. He says at verse 14, then I will also acknowledge to you that by your own right hand, you can save. Amazing what Job learned. And so James, as you turn back there, says, be quick to hear, slow to speak. And then he says, slow to what? To anger. Now, if you go back there, that's the word that he uses. He just says, slow to anger. And again, many people take that just in general anger, and I understand that. Um, Some would say that all communication breaks down because rather than being slow to speak, we are usually quick to speak. And more often than not, when we talk too much, feelings get hurt, emotions take over, and anger comes where? Out. And I suppose there's truth to that. And I think there must be a secondary application, but I'm trying to stay in the context here. Rather, I think what he's saying is in the midst of the trial, you possibly are tempted to become angry with who? God. Now, some of you, some of you get this and, and we're learning it, but some of you know what I'm talking about by experience. And you know people like this by experience. I've known people, remember when I was talking last week, who get off the railroad track and they're just off. And you say, what happened to them? A curveball came their way. A trial came their way. A temptation came their way. Finances happened. They lost a child. They lose a loved one to death. Sickness sets in and they just jump track. And I'm telling you, Some people are angry with God. So listen, when I look at this text, I'm thinking James is right on us. He's not left the theme of the word, but he's saying you've got to, as you get hear the word, you've got to get submissive to it. You've got to listen to it. You've got to be quick to hear it, slow to speak against it or against God and slow to anger. 
And I know some who have blamed God for their suffering, for their trial, for their difficulty. And they do that either directly you're to blame God or indirectly because you're sovereign and you allowed this to happen to me. And they become angry against God, angry against his word, frustrated with God, frustrated with their trial, frustrated with their suffering, frustrated at the pastor for what he preaches on, frustrated with their situation. And I think I've told you a couple times about my friend with the shoulder operation who at the end of seven surgeries was blaming God and angry for God for allowing God to hit, have a linebacker hit him in the, in the, in the height of his career. He's just angry with God. Now, you say, what kind of anger is this? Well, look down in James. You might not be able to quite catch it where it says the anger of man. There's different words in the Greek for anger, just as there's different words in the Greek for love. And this anger is not to be understood as not, as the quick outburst of anger. That's another word. This anger here is the consistent Bitter resentments of harboring animosity toward another or toward God. It is not that quick anger. It is a smoldering resentment. It is a deeply seated wrath. It is what we might even call a deeply seated rage. And, and I think what James is saying is be careful that your anger doesn't control you. He said over in 4.2, you lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Now, there are some people who say, when you lust and do not have, so you commit murder. And they say, well, that's the murder of Matthew 5. If you say to your brother, Raka, or you're fool, you're guilty of murder. And I suppose that is one type of murder. But I believe there were people whom they murdered Physically. You lust and you cannot have, so you murder. And anger was grabbing these people. Now look what James says there in the text. Go back. For the anger of man does not produce the what? The righteousness of God. Now what is that? The righteousness of God. Well, either two ways. You could either speak of that as the Apostle Paul would, who had not wrote Romans at this point. You could speak of the righteousness of God, that we're declared righteous. We understand that righteousness. You're justified to be justified and to be righteous, if you will, is to be right with God. That's that justification at salvation. But secondly, that's one. Secondly, righteousness also speaks about a practical righteousness, of our life. And I think that's the meaning here. Remember, Jesus said to seek first his kingdom and his what? Righteousness and all these other things. That's that practical, daily, spiritual righteousness. And I think just what James is saying here is that human anger does not produce the righteousness that is pleasing to God. Okay? Now, let me show you an illustration of this. You say, Scott, I don't, I don't know. Maybe it's just a little more practical than what you're saying. Well, look over in Genesis. And what I mean by that, maybe you're thinking, Scott, maybe you're trying to pinpoint this a little too much. Well, let me give you biblical examples of anger that needed to be set right. In Genesis chapter 4, you remember this, Cain and Abel. Uh, you certainly remember this. And in 4... five of Genesis, you've seen this. But for Cain and his offering... Well, you remember what this? He had no regard. So Cain was angry 
and his face, what? Fell. I mean, you say, what happened? I don't know all that happened. I don't want to go into all the nuances of that, but somehow he received Abel's offering and Cain's offering. Maybe he didn't give it by faith, according to Hebrews. He, he rejected it, or he had no regard for it. So Cain was very, what? Angry. Now, you'd have to say, well, who is he angry? Well, it's just him and his bro, right? He, he's angry, no doubt, there at God, and his face fell. Verse 6, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen if you do well you will will you not be accepted the answer yes and if you do not do well sin is crouching at your door its desire is for you but you must rule over it and Cain spoke to Abel his brother and when they were in the field you know the story Cain rose up against his brother Abel and what killed him you say why he didn't like what God told him. It's just, I don't know another way to say it. He's just mad at God. He's angry at God. God, I can't believe, which is the height of selfishness, which even in an act of grace, God comes back to him and says, but listen, you, you, could, you could redeem this, he says to him. If you do well, sin's crouching at your door, but if you do, you know, I'll accept it. And he moves towards anger. I, I know people who are like this. You know who else was like that, if you can find it in your Bible? is Jonah. Can you go there? Okay. Go over to Jonah for a second. Where does it go? Joel, Hosea, Joel, Amos. Some of you kids know the song. Did I get it right? Obadiah, Jonah. Look over at Jonah. Jonah, Micah, Nahum, is it? And, uh, but go to Jonah. You know the account of Jonah. I, I'm just giving you an example. You know this account. And he didn't want to go. God put him in the stomach of a fish. And he spit him back out. And then he went into the city. Do you remember that? Of Nineveh, the hated people of the Israelites. And they all, what? Repented at his preaching. It's the preacher's evangelist dream. You'd think he'd be pumped, but he's not pumped. Look at Jonah 3.10. Wow. When God saw what they did and when they repented and how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them and he did not do it. And then either it's in 3.10 or 4.1. Look at that next phrase. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was what? He's mad. You say mad at what? Mad that God saved the Ninevites. We should be cheering, right? He's mad because he didn't like the response. And Cain didn't like the response. I mean, if we're not just careful, anger can really set in. And so in hearing the word of God, you need to be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. And if you show anger, whether towards God or secondarily towards a person, you give the devil an opportunity. In fact, one thing anger will certainly do is take away your joy. And anger is a deed of the flesh, according to 523. And so James says here, at least as we open, 
Be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. You must hear God's word. Here it is, with submission. And so I ask you, are you listening?